Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thanks, Camille. Good morning. I'm going to set this here, and then let's, uh, let's pray real quick. Uh, Father, I pray uh, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would send your spirit and open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to start this morning by introducing you guys to a friend of mine. Uh, Some of you already know him. His name is Captain Obvious, okay? I've got a picture of him here. He's holding a sign that says, if you're reading this, you can read. Okay, now Captain Obvious, he's a faithful friend. He shows up anytime somebody says something obvious, something we all know we didn't really need to be told, but if you do, he shows up. There are things in life we don't need to be told. Water is wet. Trees are tall. Pastor Scott is tall. (laughs) We know these things. We don't need someone to tell us. But other things in life aren't so obvious. In fact, there are other things that if someone doesn't tell us, we would never know them. For example, did you know that the hashtag or pound sign is technically called an octothorpe? Okay? (laughs) Barack Obama's birthday is August 4th. Scotland's national animal is the unicorn. True story. A single strand of spaghetti is called a spaghetto. Okay? Now, even if you knew any of that before I just told you, the point is that you had to be told. Those things aren't obvious to you. They're things you wouldn't otherwise know. And this morning, we're going through a sermon. It's going to be called The Knowable God. Because actually, this might sound a little counterintuitive, but God is not obvious to us. We have to be told. Now, luckily, God has made himself known. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, how and why God has made himself known to us. In theological circles, this is called the doctrine of revelation. Now, that's different than the book of revelation at the end of your Bible. The word revelation literally just means something revealed. It's something that was not obvious that somebody told to you, and now you know. And so that's a revelation, okay? And so the doctrine of Revelation is considering how and why God has made himself known to humanity. And there's a famous uh, Christian theologian professor, his name's J.I. Packer, and he writes this, Christianity is a religion that rests on revelation. Nobody would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way had not God first acted to make himself known. So today's sermon kicks off a four-week series called, What is God Like? It's kind of a big, vague title, but we're going to be taking the next four weeks and consider just four aspects of God, things that he's done, ways that he's like, that will help us understand and know him better. And it might sound a little heady, but I'm hoping that as our knowledge of God grows, that our love and affection 
for him would grow as well, including our appreciation and understanding of what Jesus has done. So, let's talk about revelation. We've already meant, or I've already mentioned that it means God revealing himself to us. So let's talk about how and why he's done that. So first, when considering how God's revealed himself, there's two main categories. The first is called general revelation, and the second is called special revelation. You don't need to remember those technical terms, that's fine. But basically, their difference is that general revelation is available to all people all the time. It's kind of like the sun. Okay? No matter when or where on earth a person has lived, the sun has always been there. They felt its effects, they know it's there, and I know it's kind of weird that I'm saying this on a day when there is no sun, but... <laughs> You at least know about it. Everyone on the planet has known about the sun. And so general revelation is the knowledge that God has built into the fabric of the universe, has built into humanity so that at all times, anyone, anywhere, can know at least some things about God. Now there's three ways that he's done this. The first, so we're still talking about general revelation, the first mode of general revelation is creation, is the beautiful things that we see in nature. So Psalm 19 is a pretty famous passage. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world, the ends of the world. A companion verse to this is uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20, and that should be on the screen as well. And it says that what may be known about God to humanity is plain because God made it plain. How did he do that? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature, so the fact that he's God and the fact that he's powerful, he's saying, those two things at least have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And so the result is that people are without an excuse. The point in these verses is that God's fingerprints are all over the scene of creation. He has not tried to hide his tracks at all. And so when you climb Mount St. Helens and you look down into the lava dome and you looked over the blast zone and you just consider the massive amount of energy that happened 40 years ago when that eruption took place, you see something of the power of God. When you're driving across 205 and you see Mount Hood beautifully silhouetted against that bluish pink sunrise and the crisp morning air, you see something of the beauty of God. When you are in Northern California and you're standing next to a redwood tree and you look up at just the massive trunk of this giant tree, or you consider the vastness of the universe with all the stars and galaxies, you get a small sense of the vastness and the immensity of God. When the sun rises and sets faithfully every day, even behind the clouds, we know it's there, it rises and sets, seasons change from fall to winter to spring to summer, we sense or see the faithfulness and the reliability of God. 
Now, let me be clear. Creation is not God. There are some worldviews that will start worshiping creation because it's pretty cool. But creation is not itself God. It is the work of God, and it reflects his character from the sandy white beaches of the tropics to the polar ice packs around the North and South Poles. Every bit of it is intentionally designed to gently grab you by the face and point you upward. It has a derived glory, not a glory within itself, but a glory that points back to its creator. John Calvin, he's a a famous guy from church history, he calls creation the theater of God's glory, where you just get to go sit and see God's power and beauty on display throughout all of creation. And I love what he says. Uh, He says, let us not be ashamed to take pious delight in the works of God. And then further he goes on to say, we should ponder with pious meditation to what end God created them. Basically what he's saying there is, enjoy it, soak it up, go hiking, go jet skiing, have fun in the great outdoors, go hot air ballooning or parasailing or whatever it is. Watch the travel channel and just kind of be amazed at the wonders of the world and soak that in and realize as you're doing that why it's there in the first place. It's there to show you what God is like. It's there to tell you about him. And as you enjoy it, you are, in a derived sense, within the greater context of God's glory, you are enjoying God himself. So, creation. That's the first mode of general revelation. That's available to everyone all the time. The second is conscience. Okay? So Romans 2, 14 and 15 This verse is going to get a little tricky here, but try to follow with me. It says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. So what he's saying is, all right, so people who don't have the written Ten Commandments, still no lying is wrong. That's pointing to something, is what he's saying. They are law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. It's kind of a tricky verse, but basically, a good way to think about it is think about the Disney movie Pinocchio. Are you guys familiar with Pinocchio? Okay. So he's this wooden puppet, and he's given Jiminy Cricket. And Jiminy Cricket is supposed to be his conscience. It's supposed to tell him what's right and wrong. And what the Bible is telling us is God's given all of us a Jiminy Cricket. We all have an internal moral compass, and we intuitively know certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We instinctively, or what Paul says here is by nature, know that human life is valuable, and so that lying and murder are wrong. We intuitively value selflessness and self-sacrifice. We don't need something written to tell us that. There are certain things Regardless of where we are, we know when something is good or bad. Now, we live in a time and a place where that may have become twisted, but it's still there, right? And so um, even people who don't believe in God, who are agnostic or atheist, you'll find plenty of them to be nice, good people doing decent things because we intuitively know. Now, There are some people, some cultures that over a period of time have ignored or worked against their conscience and so they have become numb to it or used a biblical term, they've seared their conscience. That's what happened to the Ninevites. God tells Jonah, they don't even know their right hand from their left. 
What he's saying is they've ignored their conscience for so long that now what's wrong they think is right, and what's right they think is wrong. And so it's become upside down. So that can happen. Others might, for one reason or another, have a conscience that's gone haywire, and they either feel guilty all the time, even when they shouldn't, kind of a false guilt, a false shame. And on the other side, some may never feel guilty, even though they definitely should. But the point is that we all have it. It's not a survival technique left, op- left over from natural selection. It- it's not a product of evolution. It is a gracious gift of God that's implanted inside of us. And it, like creation, is designed to point us right back to him. It shows us a sense of his righteousness and his goodness. The third mode... So you got creation, conscience. The third mode of general revelation is called common grace. So this is what Jesus refers to in Matthew 5 when he says, God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He causes the rain to come down on the good and the evil. Paul says basically the same thing in Acts 14, adding that God provides people with plenty of food and he fills our hearts with joy. And he's talking to non-believers at that point. And he's saying, that's a testimony of God's kindness to you. So God's provision, his upholding the universe, his providing humanity with life, sun, rain, food, breath, that is a testament to all people of his kindness and goodness. And Paul appeals to that in Acts 14 as a witness to how God has been faithful to this people who had never before heard of him. So when thinking through general revelation, those are the three kind of main things that we know about. Creation, conscience, and common grace. And the, the, the result of this is, uh, well, exactly what it says in Romans 1, is that men are without excuse. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with the name Bertrand Russell. He was a famous atheist philosopher in the 20th century, and he was being interviewed. And uh, he was asked what he would do, or what he would say if he died, found out there was, in fact, a God, and that God asked him, Bertrand, Why did you not believe in me? He famously replied to the reporter, I would say, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. And that's how some people feel today. Maybe that's how some of you feel. You just can't see God. Maybe you haven't felt him in your life, or it just doesn't make sense to you. It kind of just feels chaotic. But what scripture tells us is that if we just open our eyes and consider for a moment creation, conscience, and common grace, we just consider those things, God is, in fact, as Paul says, not far from any of us. He has made himself known. Okay? And so that's the first category. It's general revelation. It reveals that there's an eternal and powerful God who's righteous, good, and just. It reveals that we are not that God because we don't have that power. We don't have that same perfection. And not just that we make mistakes, but that we actually intentionally do wrong things sometimes. General revelation is gracious to tell us all of these things, but it's not enough. It it addresses to a degree our ignorance problem but it does absolutely nothing to solve our sin problem. General revelation tells us some things about God that we would not otherwise know, but it can't fix what's broken inside of us. 
No matter how much we enjoy or study nature, how much we follow our conscience and try to be moral, no matter how much we recognize God's goodness and and common grace, we will not know what we most need to know. And that's not its purpose. General revelation is not intended to do that. It's intended to point us Again, Paul, in Acts 17, he's talking to the Athenians, and he brings up the idea of of God's care for these people. And that's where he says, God's not far from any of us. He says he did this so that you would reach out and search for him. General revelation is supposed to push you to look for more. As glorious as it is, general revelation is an incomplete picture and tells only part of the story. So here's an example. General revelation is enough for you to know that this is a picture of a woman. You can go ahead and put it on the screen. You don't need me to tell you that. I can put that up and you just know. Special revelation is me telling you details, like the fact that that, that's Rosa Parks, and the man on the side there is Martin Luther King Jr., and they were major figures in the civil rights movement. You wouldn't know that just by looking at the picture. Special revelation tells us things about God that we wouldn't know just by looking at the picture. No matter how hard we listen to the declaration of the heavens, no matter how much we see God in creation, none of it will tell us who Jesus was. None of us will tell us that he was fully man and fully God. None of, us, none of it will tell us that he was miraculously born from a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he was tempted as you are and as I am, that he willingly gave up his life and suffered the consequences of our sins, that he rose from the dead. You need special revelation for that. Special revelation is more specific in that it tells us these particular details about who God is and what he's done. But it's also more specific in its audience. So I mentioned that general revelation is available to all people all the time. Special revelation is not. Unfortunately, it's only available to a portion of the population. And there are reasons for that. Uh, that are sad, and, and I don't have time to get into it up here from the stage, but if you want to talk more about that, I'd be glad to afterwards. Uh, but the point is that special revelation is available to some people, but does tell them specifics about God. It comes in also three main modes. The first, you might be able to guess, is the Bible. The B-I-B-L-E. Okay? The Bible is not simply just a book like you'd pick up at the library. It is a revelatory document. That means that it is designed to show us and tell us things we are not just going to pick up. It's designed to tell us who God is, what he's done. So I mentioned Psalm 19 earlier as kind of a famous psalm about the heavens declaring the glory of God. Well, that's about the first six verses. The last part of that psalm goes in verse seven. These will be up on the screen as well. Um, And just so you know, When it says LORD in all caps there, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. So that's how I'm going to read it. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy, making wise the simple. You see, now he's switched from talking about creation to talking about the actual written documents that God has given his people. The precepts of Yahweh are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of Yahweh are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of Yahweh are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, 
than honey from the comb, and by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I want you to notice at least two things here. Um, All the ways the psalmist uses to describe this law, these written um, accounts of who God is and what he's done and, and the law that he's given his people, all of those adjectives describe God himself. Perfect trustworthy, making people wise, right, giving joy, all of those things, the reason God's word is those things is because he has put himself into it. He's reflected in the word itself. The second thing I want you to notice um, is, is really interesting. I kind of got this as I was praying through the psalm earlier. You can go ahead and put the first couple of verses on the screen. So the first six verses, the ones that are talking about heaven's declaring, they only use the general word for God. It's the word Elohim, okay? And that's kind of used generally. It's like our word God, okay? But when he starts talking about the written word in verses 7 through 11, you can go ahead and hit the button again, it starts using his name. So my point is here is that creation is enough to tell you that there's a God, but the Bible actually gives you his name. Revelation was not given just so that we would know God generally, but he's invited us to know him personally. We'll talk more about that in a bit. So that's the first form of special revelation. The second is called miraculous events. And so I'm kind of grouping a couple of things into this. Um, I'm grouping prophetic dreams and visions, angelic visits, and um, prophecy all into this idea of miraculous events. And, And in our culture, it might sound like those things are a little out there, but Scripture clearly tells them, and I'll give you just um, one, one or two examples. The first is from the book of Genesis. A guy named Abraham, he's the main character in that book, he's uh, living in a land called Gerar, and he tells his wife, listen, you are gorgeous. Okay, let me pause right there. That is the only thing about Abraham you should emulate in this story, okay? He tells his wife, you are gorgeous. Okay, past that, don't do what he does. He goes, All these people that were around, they are godless and terrible. And what they're going to do, if they think that we're married, is they're going to kill me and take you. So let's pretend that we're brother and sister. That way they just take you and don't kill me. Okay? I'm I'm summarizing, but that's exactly what happens. She is, in fact, a very beautiful woman, and the king of the land uh, is told of her beauty, and so he brings her into his castle to be part of his harem. It's not good. It's, it's bad. This was a bad plan to begin with. Now, God appears to the king in a dream, and he says, you touch her, and I'll kill you. That's Abraham's wife. And the guy's like, whoa, God, take it easy. I didn't know that that was his wife. They said they were brother and sister. And God's like, I know you didn't know. That's why I'm telling you right now. And then the king's like, all right, you got it. And so he wakes up in the morning, and it turns out Abraham's wrong. There is a fear of God in that place. And the king hands the woman back, untouched. He's like, we didn't do anything, I promise. Okay? The point is that the king did not know and didn't have a way of knowing because Abraham and Sarah were lying to him, did not know that they were married. And so God made it known miraculously through a dream. Now, that happens several times, many times, actually, throughout Scripture. You've got it happening with Abraham in, in some of the Abrahamic stories there, you have it happening with Joseph and the Technicolor dream code, if you're familiar with those stories. And it happens in the New Testament as well, a number of different times. 
So there's one. The second is uh, angelic visits. And uh, there's a number of different examples, but um, I'll use the uh, famous one. When the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and he says, surprise, you're pregnant. And she's like, but I'm a virgin. And he's like, I know, surprise, I said. (laughs) Again, I'm summarizing. Um, By the way, he's God, and you need to name him Jesus, okay? She would have been totally unable to come up with any explanation to why she was pregnant apart from that visit. So the point is that God sometimes makes things known about himself and his work in the world through dreams, visions, prophecy, angelic visits. And prophecy is really just God miraculously making known a message to a messenger and then that person communicating it to God's people. Okay? And so that's the second category, is miraculous events. And so you've got the Bible, miraculous events, and finally, the other way God has specially made himself known and most ultimately is Jesus. It's your Sunday school answer, Jesus himself. So uh, look at John 1.18. It says here, um, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus has made God known in a way that nothing else ever has. Colossians 1.15 says that he's the image of the invisible God. At the end of the book of John, um, Philip, one of his disciples, says to Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus has revealed revealed God to us in a way that we had never seen him before. The incarnation, which is God becoming a man in the person of Jesus, is the ultimate form of personal revelation. His ultimate revelation is not through something spoken or created, as glorious as those things are, but his ultimate revelation is himself. He didn't just give us a picture or a postcard. He actually came to dwell among us. Jesus is the centerpiece of God's revelation of himself to humanity. And just as all roads lead to Rome, all forms of revelation point to Christ. Colossians says he's the firstborn over all of creation. Creation recognizes his supremacy, his superiority. That's why when you read that he gets up out of the boat and he tells the wind and the waves, quiet, be still, they listen. That's why when he tells Lazarus to stand up from the dead, the body that had been created by God recognized the voice and came out of the tomb. Creation recognizes and points to Christ and submits to Christ. Our consciences bear witness that he is good. Even those who aren't followers of Christ will tell you he was a good teacher. He was a moral man. We've got plenty of people in the world who are willing to say that because their consciences, given to them by God, their Jiminy Cricket, points to Jesus and says, yes, he was good and moral and right. Even if they don't get the whole story right, they know that. The Bible is written to testify concerning him. Every vision and dream that a person had was moving the story of human history along to Christ. And so ultimately, it's in Jesus that God has made himself known. And so if we want to know what God is like, we know Jesus. We look to him. 
So now the question is why? We've seen how. God has made himself known through creation, conscience, common grace. He's made himself, made himself known through the Bible, through miraculous events, and through Jesus. The question is, why did God tell you about himself? Why did God tell humans who he was? Our friend Captain Obvious is coming back. God has made himself known to you so that you would know him. Duh. It might sound like a simple answer, but think about it for a moment. It's not just that he's made himself known like he gave us a Wikipedia entry on himself, that we would know him kind of distantly. He has made himself known that we would know him personally and relationally. He has designed creation, he's designed your brain and heart and the plan of human history with Jesus at the center of all of that to bring you into fellowship with him. Revelation is not simply a means of knowledge, it is that, but it is also, and more importantly, a means of relationship. And it's close to the heart of Christ himself. Um, We're going to look at John 17. This is where Jesus, it's the night before he was, um, well, it's, it's as he was right about to be arrested, and he's praying, and it's sometimes called his high priestly prayer, and it's, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And, uh, we're going to look at verses 24 to 26, and that's the passage that Camille read earlier. This is Jesus praying for his followers, including us. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I'll continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. I want them to be with me where I am. He wants you with him. He wants you to enjoy his glory, the glory that he has had since before the world was created. He wants you sitting there, seeing it, enjoying it, reveling in it. And look again at what he says in verse 26. I've made you known to them, and I'll continue to make you known. Why? It says right here that the love you have for me would be in them and that I myself would be in them. Jesus has made God known so that we would be included in the love that has eternally existed between God the Father and God the Son and that he himself would dwell in us. God has initiated the relationship by making himself known to us in order that we would know and love him. And he didn't do that because he was lonely and sitting around in the cosmos and wanted some friends, and so he created us. He didn't do that because he's an egotistical maniac who wanted mindless servitude and worship as if he lacked the worship and glory at the beginning. He, out of an overflow of the love that was already there within himself, created us, revealed himself to us to invite us into it. The beauty of our God is that he knows you. And more incredibly, that he has invited you to know him. He is not the removed God of Islam. 
He's not the impersonal, vague God of Northwestern spirituality like the force in Star Wars or, or some vague notion of righteousness. He is the relational and knowable God. And the beautiful thing is that you'll never know him enough. As you get to know him through Christ, you'll realize there's always more for me to learn. And the more that I know, the more that I soak in what God has made known to me through these different ways, the more I will love him. One guy said it like this. He said, an introduction to Christ was but the beginning of an unending revelation of God to my waiting, wondering, and worshiping heart. The more one gets to know him, the more he is loved and the better he is served. Like wine or a good, healthy marriage, it does well. Our relationship with God um, improves with time as we get to know him, as we mature in our knowledge of him. Our relationship gets better and better. So that's the why. He has revealed himself that we would be in relationship with him, knowing him, loving him, worshiping him. And so I want to close with thinking through how do we respond to this idea, this, this truth that God's made himself known in these different ways and that he's done it so that I would love and know him. How do we respond? I've got at least four ways. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is a four that I thought of. Um, the first is we respond in praise and thanksgiving. We just recognize that if God had not done this, we would be groping around in the dark without any idea who he was. We praise him and thank him that he has made himself known, that he's initiated to draw us in. The second is we respond by entering into a relationship with him. If that's why it was created, then I respond by coming forward and devoting myself entirely to God. I look to him, and he is my God, and I am his person. Revelation was given that we would know him personally and exclusively. And as we do that, as we see him and become devoted to him, we realize more and more that he's the one that can fix our broken souls, that he's the one that can fix our sin problem. And as we know him more and more and our relationship with him grows more and more, we begin to reject the false idols and saviors that our culture puts forward. The more we know about God, the more we realize money's not going to do it. And so I reject the God of money. I reject the idea that climbing the corporate ladder is going to bring my life meaning. I reject the idea that a happy family and a good home will ultimately be the abundant life in eternity. I reject the idea that a good retirement is what Jesus meant when he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We reject those idols. We may enjoy them for what they are, but we don't look to them. And so one of the ways that we respond to Revelation is by crushing the idols in our life and entering into that personal and exclusive relationship with God himself. The third response is that we continue to get to know him. Some of you have been following the Lord for decades, and I would just encourage you, keep going. You have not yet reached the bottom. There is more to learn. He is an inexhaustible source of joy. There's always more diamonds in the mine. There's always more treasure in the chest. And if you're just starting out on your walk with the Lord, don't let the fact that you'll never finish the puzzle discourage you. 
It's, it is an unending walk of joy and growth as we get to know him more and more and as time goes on. It's kind of like what Gandalf said about the hobbits. You can learn all there is to know about their ways, and yet after a hundred years, they can still surprise you. A fourth and final response is that we would be a conduit of God's revelation to others. My uh, sister-in-law is a missionary with the organization YWAM and uh, stands for Youth with a Mission. And the mission statement of Youth with a Mission is to know God and make him known. It's a great motto. It's a great mission statement for an organization. And it's also really a great motto for any believer. We know God. Through Christ, we know who he is. We know what he's done. Because you're sitting in this room, you have access to the scriptures. You have access to teaching about who God is and what he's done. And one of the ways that you can respond to that is by now telling others who don't have that access. Either because they're not, they haven't read or been in church, maybe they're coworkers or family members, and maybe it's getting involved in foreign missions to unreached people groups who are still only with general revelation and they need more. But the fourth way is that we could respond by extending that we would, ourselves would become a form of God's special revelation. We would be messengers of God's goodness and grace to the world. So, God's made himself known. He's done it through general and special revelation. You can forget those terms, but what I want you to know is that God has made himself known to you so that you would love him and worship him and that you would be in relationship with him. He truly is the knowable God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've made yourself known to us. Thank you that you are not far from any of us. God, I just want to thank you for just your grace and your goodness. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of some of these truths, that you would help us to respond in praise and worship, that we would be faithful to you, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we would share this good news with others. And God, I ask that you would just be with us the rest of today. Help us to revel and enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen.